You're listening to the John Stapleton Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Today we are in the book of Revelation. So um, today I'm going to be covering chapters 12 through 14. And uh, let me just catch you up a bit. I know it's been a few weeks. Uh, I have been going through the book of Revelation with the high school students at my church with our student pastor, Samantha. And I've been pacing myself with with them. And so uh, I haven't been posting on Revelation every single week. Um, but we got past chapter 14 yesterday. And so I want to uh, pick it up. And, and I'll just give you a brief uh, overview of what Revelation is and was so far. So Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ that uh, that Jesus gave to his apostle John. John was on the island of Patmos for preaching about Jesus. They tried to kill him. They tried to um, um, you know soak him in a vat of oil, but he survived that miraculously. So they exiled him to Patmos where he writes the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we get a personalized message from Jesus to seven local churches in Asia Minor. We also get uh, scenes of heaven. We get a scene of the throne room of God. It's it's a, a concept that appears throughout the scriptures, um, but it is fleshed out in full, um, uh, fleshed out a lot more fully in the book of Revelation. And then what follows that scene is um, a scroll with you know, writing on both sides of it, and it's sealed seven times, and, and Jesus is the only one who's able to break the seven seals. He's the only one that will uh, be able to reveal to us what's coming next. Uh, Jesus is always the one that reveals himself as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And then that is followed by um, a bunch of scenes on earth that are destructive. A third of the water is undrinkable. A third of the trees burn down. Um, just like the, the earth is starting to be destroyed um, in a small, at, at a small scale. And then that's followed by the trumpets. And the trumpets uh, represent really just um, the suffering that unbelievers will go through on earth. Um, and, and then and then that's followed by um, uh, another window that kind of opens up where we have our two witnesses in chapter 11. And they're still preaching to people on the earth. Um, the, the book of Revelation calls them the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. They're preaching repentance, but they won't listen. And, and eventually the prophets get killed just like Jesus does. And they rise from the dead after three days and they're received in heaven, just like Jesus was, even just like Elijah was received in heaven. And then, and then that brings us to chapter 12. So chapter 12 is very special. If you can think of, if you can think of Christmas morning, that is chapter 12. And a lot of us are, uh, we like the Christmas story. It's safe for the whole family. It's, it's cozy, um, you know, away in a manger, the little baby lay, right? A silent night, holy night. It's just kind of tranquil and surreal and cute. But the question is, what was happening in the spiritual world? What was happening in heaven when Jesus was born? And the answer is war. Revelation 12, 7 says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon wasn't strong enough. He was kicked out. And now he pursues those of us who follow Jesus, who, who live on the earth. 
And so this explains why life is hard. This explains why you're opposed. If you feel like you have opposition, it's because you do. If you feel like you have an enemy, it's because you do. This enemy is revealed as the one who pursued Israel, it, um, the same enemy that pursued Jesus, the same enemy, enemy that pursues his followers, pursues Christians. This is why Christianity is the, the most hated religion on earth. It's because the others aren't really true, but the one that is is being persecuted. And Jesus Jesus entrance into human history, it marked the end of evil. 1 John 3:8 says that the reason the son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is a search and destroy mission against sin. I've said it historically, uh, I'll bring it back for the sake of the study. It's a search and destroy mission against sin. And this is why he was so feared, because he is the true king. And so when he was born, King Herod, the jealous king, tried to kill him. And he, he ended up killing all the boys in the region of Bethlehem um, under the age of two. And, and the scene jumps to two beasts. If we go to chapter 13... The scene jumps to two beasts. So we have the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. The beast from the sea represents world religion. And the beast from uh, the earth represents world religion. So world government, world religion. The first beast is world government. The second beast is world religion. And they partner together to enslave everybody under the worship of the false trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. And this is where all sorts of things come into play. Um, there is uh, all sorts of imagery that's employed throughout the Bible, mainly the book of Daniel. Uh, so if, if, if I keep saying, if you don't know the Old Testament, this is a good year to learn the Old Testament. Uh, I've, spent, I've been spending some time in First and Second Kings, and it's been, it's been a great, uh, refreshing time in God's Word. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the, the devil does is um, he blasphemes God. He's, he's this wild beast. He's got like 10 heads. Uh, a horn on each head, a crown on each head. This represents different kings, different rulers, and the beast represents the government system. And the, the point is, uh, whether we're talking about Russia or China or, um, you know, uh, or Islam, uh, not Islam, um, her, you know, Iran, um, whether, what, whatever country we're talking about that is hostile to God, you could even throw in America, it's, it's part of that, Ten-headed beast. It's part of that beast that oppresses God's people. If you're unfamiliar with the the concept of the beast, you can go back to Daniel seven. That's where you'll read about him. And Daniel seven is very interesting because it it reveals, hey, um, uh, this is Persia, this is Greece, this is Rome, this is, um, you know, these are all those. Um, I think I, um, this is Persia, Medo Persia. Like these are these are these rulers that will exist and are existing, um, and, and they're not going to make it. Um, they're, they're going to turn and eat each other. They're going to destroy each other. Uh, in Daniel 2, Daniel has a vision of a statue, and the statue represents, again, multiple kingdoms. But they're not made the same way, right? Like Babylon, the king of Babylon, he's the head of gold, but Rome is the feet, and it's made of clay. And in the middle, you have bronze, and you have all these 
materials that don't mix well in a statue. And so um, what's fascinating is Jesus, uh, in, in the vision in Daniel 2, um, Daniel sees a rock that hits the statue. It's thrown at the statue, and the statue shatters. And that rock is Jesus. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil often play out through evil, rebellious governments that hate God. This is why Christians believe in something called civil disobedience. This is not anarchy. This is, I'm going to obey my government until my government tells me to disobey God. Because power is derived from God. Any power that the government has, it's given to it by God. And so as long as the government is obeying God, we'll obey the government. As long as the government does not obey God, we don't obey the government. We obey God. There's more I could probably say on that, but I'll, I'll save my comments. We must remember that God is in control. And, and, God, and because God is in control, Satan always tries to steal that throne away. The, the conflict of the Bible is there's one throne. Who, who sits on that throne? Who's the ultimate decision maker? Who's the ultimate ruler? And if the devil cannot reign in heaven because he was kicked out, he tries to reign on earth through human governments. The first iteration of this is in Genesis 11, where the people came together at the plain of Shinar to build the Tower of Babel. Let's build the highest ziggurat so that we can rule as gods. And uh, that's another conversation for another day. I can talk to you about high places and thin places. Um, but that was the thinking. You would get to this highest point, and whoever was at the highest point was closest to God or was God. That was the thinking back then. And with everyone speaking the same language and everyone have the same mission, you know, God looks down at the project and says, hey, nothing is impossible for them. And by the way, it's funny that he has to look down. It's like, let me get a, let me get a peek at that building, right? But this is what we do. God has his throne and there are other thrones, education, government, church. entertainment, society-making, philosophy. There are all sorts of thrones, and the question is, who influences that throne? Who sits on that throne? And this brings us to chapter 14, and chapter 14 is beautiful. It presents a stark image of two groups of people, the lamb and the beast, Mount Zion, Mount Babylon, those who have the Father's name and those who are marked with the mark of the beast, 666. And by the way, I don't believe that's a microchip. I don't believe that's um, a tattoo. I believe that's an ideology. The forehead often uh, represents ideology, and the hands represent the practice of that ideology. And so if people are being marked on their hands and their foreheads, it's another way to say through their ideology, through their beliefs, and through what they choose to do, they have aligned with the beast. They wear the beast's name. That's what that means. So I wouldn't wait for a microchip or anything. Some of you, perhaps, have already taken the mark of the beast. 
by how you choose to live your life and what you choose to believe. If you are anti-Jesus, you worship the beast. But chapter 14 paints the picture of these two groups of people. And, uh, and it's amazing. It's, there are these various angels that are involved, and the first angel flies overhead with the, what the Bible says, the eternal gospel. And, and, and I love this because the gospel is for everybody, uh, all people, all places, all times. God is very generous with his invitation. You need to know that. He's exclusive, meaning those only those who accept his invitation are welcome into his kingdom. But he extends his invitation to everybody. And as we saw in chapter 9, there are some people that will refuse to repent. No matter what happens, the earth could literally, uh, the apocalypse could be taking place on earth. And instead of seeing it as a sign to turn to God, they will they will see it as not the absence of God. How do I say this? Uh, they will see, they will blame God for that, and they will not use that opportunity to repent. And and the way chapter fourteen ends is judgment. There are two groups. There are two harvests. Um, God's people are harvested from the earth. And Satan's people are harvested for judgment. They're called the clusters of grapes, the grapes of God's wrath. And there's this imagery that enters chapter 14. It's the imagery of a cup. The angel says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality. It's a cup. And what's interesting is she also now needs to drink the cup of God's wrath which might be the same cup where, again, we're dealing with imagery here. And the question that I have for you this morning is, who's going to drink that cup? Are you going to drink it or is Jesus going to drink it? The night before Jesus died on the cross, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating drops of blood. He is very nervous about dying a gruesome death by execution, by, by crucifixion. And he prays to God, I don't want to drink this cup. Is there another way? Please take this cup from me. But he doesn't. God doesn't take it away. Jesus drinks the cup on our behalf. And those that don't accept Jesus still have a cup to drink. If Jesus doesn't drink the cup for you, you got to drink it. And that's my question. Why would you drink a cup if Jesus already drank it? Trust the eternal gospel. That's the, that's the message of chapter 14. The last thing I want to hit is just why why eternal judgment? Why all this? It seems excessive. And uh, and what I would say is, it doesn't matter what you do; it matters who you sin against. If if you lie to me, I'm nobody. But if you lie to a detective or a judge or a cop, well, now we're dealing with a higher level of authority, and the ramifications, the consequences, are more steep because not because of what you did, but because of who you transgressed. And God, if God is the most infinitely valuable being in the world, being in the universe, being in all creation, being beyond creation, then what we do against him, even if it's just one little thought, one little rogue thought, that's enough to separate us from him for all eternity. And the scandalous thing is that he sent his son anyway, after a lifetime of sin, to save those who would trust him.
it's not our position to judge God, but it is our responsibility to respond to God by believing the gospel, fearing God, and worshiping him. That's my overview of Revelation chapter 12 through 14. I hope you go read it. Until next time, God bless.